All Eyes Visual Hall VRP is a portable vision testing platform that includes visual fields, acuity, color vision testing, pupillometry, and extraocular motility. The visual leverages virtual reality, artificial intelligence, and augmented technologies to enable eye care providers to test for and monitor common eye diseases. Visit alleyes.com for more information. Do your patients know what presbyopia is? There are people who are afraid of the press. Have you talked to your patients about multifocal contact lenses? I've heard the bifocal, but not right, multifocal. Do you need help with your multifocal strategy? Learn more at the conclusion of this episode. With more screen usage and indoor time, myopia, also known as nearsightedness, is increasing and getting worse in children. Now, certified eye doctors can prescribe my sight one day. The first and only FDA-approved soft contact lens to slow myopia progression in age-appropriate children. Visit coopervision.com to find a Brilliant Futures certified eye doctor near you. Your eyes and your vision are under attack, damaging blue light from the sun. Your phone, your computer, your tablet, even light bulbs and car headlights is constantly bombarding you. The good news is our eyes actually already have a line of defense to counter the effects of blue light. This defense is made up of three pigments called carotenoids. MacuHealth with Micromicel, the only supplement with the exclusive patent on all three macular carotenoids and Micromicel technology. Hello and welcome to the Open Your Eyes podcast. I'm Dr. Kerry Gelb, the host of the documentary Open Your Eyes. If you're new here and you like our interviews, press like, subscribe, share, and hit the bell to get notifications of great new interviews. Also, please leave comments. Great news, you can now watch our full-length documentary Open Your Eyes on Amazon Prime, Apple TV, iTunes, Google Play, and YouTube movies and shows. And tune in to our brand new radio show, Saturday mornings at 9 a.m. Central Time on AM 1280, The Patriot. Eyesight is considered our most important sense. People tend to rely more on sight rather than hearing or smell for information about their environment. Loss of vision has been linked to loneliness, depression, social isolation, and feelings of worry, anxiety, and fear. Today's amazing and inspiring guest, Mr. Chad Forster, lost his eyesight in his early 20s, and he decided to make blindness his strength. Chad's story is remarkable. Chad did what Oracle said could not be done, building a software solution that created job opportunities for hundreds of millions of people. Chad is currently the Senior Director of Worldwide Deal Management at Red Hat, the world's only multi-billion dollar open source software company. Chad is a motivational speaker. Be sure to buy his empowering book, Blind Ambition, and subscribe to his newsletter. So Chad, when people lose something and they go through grieving, such as it could be loss of a spouse or loss of sight or loss of a limb, God forbid, uh, they go through a grieving process. Mm -hmm. uh, denial, depression, anger, acceptance. Yeah. Some people get to acceptance much quicker than others. Yep. Some people are in, the same, are in the stages, all the stages at one time. I want to talk about how you got to acceptance faster than most people did. And if you could talk about the different stages of denial, depression, anger, and how losing your sight uh, got you through, helped help get you through this grieving process a little bit sooner. 
Yeah, I think my situation was a bit unique in that I actually was in denial before I started losing my eyesight. I was in denial that I even had an eye disease. You know, even though I was diagnosed at three years old with retinitis pigmentosa or RP, you see, my parents noticed that I had a hard time seeing in really poorly lit rooms. And so they took me to Duke University Medical Center, and it was there that the doctors diagnosed me with RP. And they they told my parents, you know, you should put him in a special school for the blind. But, you know, instead, my parents signed me up for soccer. They thought that was a better way to go about dealing with it. And so I, I lived my life as normally as, as one would imagine. I, I didn't, couldn't really do a lot of things in dark areas, but I played sports, played football, played basketball, soccer, baseball, you know, and drove a car, rode a bike, things like that. So I lived a very active lifestyle as a child growing up. And so I think I was really in denial that I really I had anything in particular going on with my eyes. And that was true up until I started college and I was, I was in college. I wanted to go into the medical field to help other people. And it's there where my eyesight really began to fade. I started losing the remaining vision that I had during the day. And so that was a tough time for me because, you know, we ask kids all the time, what do you want to be when you grow up? And none of them say they want to be a blind person. So it was then that the depression kicked in. I'd, I'd been in denial. Now things were fading out of my eyesight. I couldn't deny it anymore. The game was kind of catching up with me. And so I was in denial. It was a, a really challenging time. I, Like I said, I was in the medical field because I wanted to help other people, but now I wasn't even sure if I could help myself. So I switched my major to business, lost about three years of university work, went into the, the business administration field, because I thought, you know what, I don't even know what I can do, let alone what I want to do as a subset of that. So that was a challenging time for me. And, and I think I was, I was probably still in both of those phases, denial and depression. And that continued for a little while. And I had an experience at Leader Dogs for the Blind. So I went there to get my first guide dog. I was 23 years old and I rolled into campus there in Rochester Hills, Michigan. And I'm show up on campus and I'm woe is me, poor me, you know, that's got this unique rare eye disease, feeling really bad for myself and had a really had a life-changing experience for me there. And it happened because the people there, you know, there were some really incredible people there. Some of the people that I was I was getting a dog with there in partnership there on the school, some of them had mental impairments on top of being blind. Some of them were on dialysis because they had diabetes that had robbed them of their eyesight. So they had to go get dialysis every week. And some of them were deaf and blind. And despite these unimaginable challenges, well above and beyond what I was going through, these brave souls were getting a guide dog so that they could be independent. Now, look, it's one thing when you just meet someone on the street and hear how rough they have it, but it's another thing altogether when you live with someone and you see those challenges firsthand for an entire month. That experience at Leader Dogs for me was my tipping point. That is what helped get me through the phases of grief and into acceptance. And it's because I realized there at that, at that experience at Leader Dogs, witnessing the living courage displayed by these people that 
you know, it, it can always be worse. No matter how bad your situation is, it can always be worse. And that's when I learned one of, honestly, it's one of life's most valuable lessons. And a lot of people think happiness is some feeling that comes over you. And, you know, happiness isn't a feeling and it's not an emotion. It's a decision that you get to make every single day when you wake up. You either choose how you're going to look at things or you just allow random circumstances to affect your happiness. So the beauty in this is that we all have the power to choose. You have the power to choose, to choose your response and to you know, choose your perspective and to choose your attitude. You know, I'm, I, I want to really get into that. But before we do, I just want to give the audience a little background about retinitis pigmentosa. Sure. You know, for the people out there, it's hered as a, I'm an eye doctor, as a hereditary retinal disease. And the most common, about one in 4,000 people have it worldwide. And talk about some of the symptoms that you had at the beginning. What were some of the things that you noticed? Uh, loss of peripheral vision, loss of night vision, uh, when you started realizing that you were getting RP or retinitis pigmentosa? Yeah, for me, it started with nighttime vision. That was the real tough one at first was the loss of vision in, in really dark areas. And so there were lots of incidents that let me know that I had a problem. You know, how do you find out what you can't see when you can't see it? Well, the short answer is you run into it. And being a very active young little boy, I ran into it at a high rate of speed. I spent so much time in the emergency room that my parents and me were both questioned separately by hospital staff because they thought they were abusing me. That's how much I was there. And so I would do things like I would fall and, you know, hit my head on an obstacle that I didn't see, like a downspout. One time, you know, we were out on the farm at, at my grandparents and there was a water truck there and I'm running down the driveway at dusk. And I just couldn't see that there was a, a water truck parked there. And I hit the pipe on the back of the water truck at full speed. And so it was just constant things like that at you know, really close to dark. And then it eventually led into the, the time frame when the peripheral vision started to fade. And then I started getting more and more of these things called floaters, which are like little dots that kept getting in my way of seeing. I would have to look the floaters away. And eventually the blind spots, like I had these blind spots throughout my field of vision. It started in the peripheral vision, but it ended up going everywhere, all throughout my central vision. So it was a lot like looking through a really, really dense fog. And if you've ever, you know, either had your, your, um, been in a situation where the fog is so thick, it's really hard to see. That's really what it was like for me when I was in college, the fog really began to roll in. You know, uh, with, with retinitis pigmentosa, uh, there's actually a new drug Unfortunately, it's only about 1% of the population, people that have retinitis pigmentosa can benefit from this drug, Lepsterna. Have you heard about that? I have not heard about that one, no. So you have to have this special RPE65 mutation. And uh, unfortunately, not a lot of people with RP have it. Do you have any vision at all? Not, not anymore, no. And I no. don't have that genetic mutation. I have one. There was a, a compound called QLT that would have uh -huh. worked for me. I have a mutated LRAT gene. I saw that one on the market. It went into human clinical trials briefly a couple of times, but before I could, I could get involved with that, it actually, it went off the, out of, out of clinical trial mode and it's being, I don't know, it's under review or something. Maybe you have more insight into that than I do. So Chad, tell me, why did you write the book Blind Ambition? Well, it was kind of, kind of an interesting situation. I, 
was actually really I hadn't thought thought about doing too much with my personal story, you know, I never really saw my story as all that extraordinary. I just thought, you know, I was doing what I had to do. Yeah, I was, I'd, I'd been given some adversity in my life because of my situation. I went blind in college, ended up having to relearn how to learn. Turns out I was a better blind student than sighted student. <laughs> went on, made straight A's, made the dean's list, you know, got a job in the the technology space uh, ended up climbing. for a second. Why were you a better blind student than a sighted student? Well, I think because things came so easily for me as a sighted student, I had a really great visual recall. So I didn't have to work that hard to make good grades. And so I did what a lot of people do. And that's just memorize answers for a test. When I went blind, I had to learn I had to relearn how to learn, uh, meaning I couldn't just use my eyes and scan text and memorize where things were on the page. I actually had to listen to the content in audio format. I mean, my mom, God bless her soul, read every single one of my audio books. Uh, uh, excuse me, every single one of my books to audio for me, every single one of my business books to audio, my mom read. And so I'd listened to my college coursework audibly. So I read the book twice. I recorded the lectures. I listened to those twice. And then I had a note taker who would help me go over notes using audio and, uh, and, and their written descriptions of what was going on in class. And that whole new learning system that I had to adapt to forced me to, instead of just memorizing content, memorizing something for a test, it forced me to really internalize what was going on with the content. So it forced me to really understand what was going on so that I could commit it to a much deeper level of memory than just memorization. So that that's kind of what I mean by it, it caused me to be a better blind student. It required more effort. It required more, uh, more thought, more internalization, and more attachment to the meaning behind the words instead of just purely memorizing what was going on there. Where do you get your drive from? Did it come from your mom, your dad, or did it just come from you? Well, my both of my parents are extremely hardworking people. It's just off the charts, hardworking. I would say my dad would, would always hold us, though, to a higher standard. And he realized, in, in particular me, because of my situation, he realized that I was going to have to do a bit more than my brother, who didn't have an eyesight problem. He realized it was going to be a bit of a harder road for me. So if you ask him, you know, he might he might get raw with you, might get real and tell you that he held me to a higher standard. I think he did. You know, um, I might be a little biased, but, you know, he, he made me work a little harder. You know, there was a time I can recall growing up. And this is in the book. He asked me to trim the lawn and we had a trimmer and we had, you know, a push mower and uh, a weed, weed trimmer and, and, and that. And I get the weed trimmer out to go trim the lawn. He's like, no, I don't want you to use the weed trimmer. I want you to use a pair of scissors I'm like but that's going to take a long time. He's like, yeah, I know. So it was those kinds of things. That was just one simple example. But those kinds of things he was doing, I believe, to prepare me for the road ahead. And you know, the reality of it is, is it worked. When I went blind and found out there was this software that could read the screen to me called JAWS. This is when I was in college and going into the workforce and I realized, oh no, JAWS doesn't work with all these proprietary software applications. 
what am I going to do? Well, I taught myself how to write code to engineer that software. Now, learning how to do that wasn't easy, but it would have been impossible if I didn't have that drive, if I didn't have an open mindset, if I didn't have the willingness to lean into how in the world is a guy who literally cannot even see his computer screen, learn how to write code to engineer these two pieces of software so that they can communicate with one another. But the upbringing that I had, and I would say you know, a lot of it is due to my dad, a lot of it's due to my mom, and I'd say I had some of that inside of me too, because I just didn't want, honestly, I, I, I didn't want to just give up and settle for whatever happened. I, I realized that I've got one life to live. You know, you have one life to live. Your listeners, they have one life to live. That's it. That's all we know of is this one. So you can sit around and not take action based on fear or discomfort or, you know, what if this happens? What if that happens? And, you know, how's that going to resonate with you when you're older, when you look back on your life? If you don't get what you want out of your life, how much is it going to matter if you had a legitimate reason to fail? So I just, I don't subscribe to that school of thought. I, I hold myself accountable so that, okay, I didn't sign up for all of my circumstances, but at the end of the day, all of us have to be accountable for our lives and our outcomes. You know, this is my life, so I've got to own it. And that's your life. You've got to own it. If you don't own your life, who will? And talk about dealing with change. You know, we have to deal with all kinds of change as the economy, we had to deal with COVID. Talk about dealing with change from you and how you could help other people deal with change. Yeah, see, change is like adversity, right? It's inevitable. It's always going to be there. It's the anxiety that's optional. And so how do we, how do we navigate change in a way without anxiety? And I think fundamentally what it gets down to is we all need to learn how to tell ourselves better stories. Now, the fact of the matter is when I went blind, essentially there were two stories that I could have told myself. Story number one is that I went blind because I've got really, really bad luck, right? Or I could choose to tell myself a different story. Story number two is that I went blind because I'm one of the very few people on the planet who has the strength and the toughness to overcome that and use it to help other people. Now, technically, both of these stories can be true. So which story should I live by? One story paints me as a victim. But the second story, the better story, is a Jedi mind trick that transforms my disability into my strength. I went blind because I could suck that up and take it while helping other people. But you don't have to go blind to use this tool. Anyone can make the decision to tell themselves a better story. The biggest influence in our lives is us. So if both your stories are true, why wouldn't you tell yourself a better story? Because I promise you this, at the end of our lives, every single one of us will become the stories that we tell ourselves. You talk about victim and or the visionary. Mm -hmm. Tell us about that, how you decided to be a visionary rather than a victim. Well, I think all of us, when we're struck with circumstances that are outside of what we had hoped for, it's easy to feel like a victim. I certainly felt like a victim. I felt victimized by my new circumstances, by blindness. And so in order to shift my mindset, you know, it required a couple of things. It required me to anchor myself in gratitude, 
I had to learn how to choose a different perspective. And that happened when I was at Leader Dogs for the Blind, when I met people there who faced far greater obstacles than I'd ever had. They'd never experienced many of the things that I had experienced. And so that gave me a foundation of gratitude. Then I started learning to tell myself better stories. And then what I really had to do to learn how to shift my mindset completely from victim to visionary is figure out how I could make sometimes unpalatable circumstances work for me instead of against me. I had to figure out how I could make blind look good. Now, that technical term is called cognitive reframing. And what that really means is I'm going to control how I explain things to myself or the marketing in my mind. And after you, after you manage the marketing in your mind, it's no longer marketing. It's your story. You get to choose how it ends. So if you can take your situation, anchor yourself to gratitude, tell yourself better stories, and then learn how to visualize greatness in sometimes unpalatable circumstances and figure out how you can make that situation work for you instead of against you. How could I make blind look good? All of a sudden, I've painted a bold vision of greatness for myself that for me, you know, now it involves helping other people with what I've learned. And the irony of all of that, that makes going blind worth it. Because now I'm not just, I didn't go blind just for me. I'm going blind because there's an opportunity to help other people with the lessons I've learned in my own journey, but they don't have to go through those same experiences to benefit from them. You talk about excuses are for losers. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, it's tough, right? I mean, excuses are for losers. I know that's hard to hear, but how many of us look around trying to find legitimate reasons to fail? And even if you find a legitimate reason to fail, how does that serve you? I mean, there may be you know a couple of legitimate reasons to fail. Maybe if you're dead, that's pretty legitimate. Or maybe you're beating your competition so badly that you want to help them catch up. That could be another reason to fail. But at the end of your life, who would you rather be? Someone who found good and possibly even legitimate reasons to fail or someone who found a way to break through their barriers? You know, sometimes we just have to accept that the circumstances are what they are. I was blind and there was absolutely nothing that I could do about it. So if I wanted to just sit around and feel sorry for myself at 20 something years old, that'd mean I'd be sitting around and feeling sorry for myself for about another 50 years. That's a lot of sorry. For the rest of my life, I knew I'd be blind, but I didn't want to be blind and bitter. You see, my blindness was guaranteed, but my attitude, that was up to me. It's amazing because you make the decision whether you want to be happy or you want to be sad. And you talk about that a, a lot in your book and about what has changed you to become the person that you, that you are. And just looking at you, you're in great shape. You're a very good looking person. Uh, you're, you're really an, a, a, really an incredible person. Uh, so Thank as you. we come back, uh, we're speaking with uh, Mr. Chad Forster. Uh, we're going to talk about, please uh, subscribe to his newsletter. We'll be back after the break. The All Eyes Visual VRP is a portable vision testing platform that includes visual fields, acuity, color vision testing, pupillometry, and extraocular motility. The visual leverages virtual reality, artificial intelligence, and augmented technologies to enable eye care providers to test for and monitor common eye diseases. 
Visit alleyes.com for more information. MacuHealth, your science-born and tested solutions for visual performance, macular degeneration, and dry eye syndrome. New products coming soon. Embrace the science. We're back with uh, Chad Foster, the author of Blind Ambition, has a great newsletter. He's a motivational speaker. He's blind, but he's done more in his life than most of us ever dream dreamed to do. Uh, so, Chad, I want to ask you a little bit about uh, about being in your comfort zone. How do you? Why does getting out of your comfort zone make you stronger? Well, I think honestly, comfort zones are the same as complacency. And what growth happens when you're complacent? You know, life begins outside of our comfort zones. If you're never getting outside of your comfort zone, then you're never growing. And I look back at my life and, you know, honestly, I've spent so much of my life outside of my comfort zone. I really think it's a big part of why I'm here today in the situation that I'm in. You know, growing up and learning that you can't see in poor, poor, poorly lit situations, really dark areas, and learning the limitations of your eyesight by bouncing off of physical objects, whether they be metal poles or you know concrete downspouts, whatever the case may be, that was pretty uncomfortable, right? Going to the hospital and getting stitched up for the hundredth time—that's pretty uncomfortable. And then, you know, not being able to drive a car at night like my friends could socially—that was very uncomfortable. And then getting going to college and losing my eyesight, not being able to see. That was uncomfortable. And then getting a guide dog, which you would think, hey, that would be great. And, and it was, and it was a life-changing experience. But the first time you walk into a university classroom with a 110-pound German Shepherd, that's a little uncomfortable. And then going into job interviews with a guide dog and going to airports, hopping a flight to go wherever in the United States, not knowing the airport, not knowing the hotel, not knowing the client site, that's uncomfortable. And then eventually I started traveling all over the world, going to different countries where I don't speak the language, can't read the signage. That was uncomfortable. And so I, I got so used to getting outside of my comfort zone that I realized I started seeking out experiences that would help me get even more uncomfortable. Because as I edged outside of my comfort zone, my comfort zone continued to expand. And so now I've, I've taken on things like, for example, to broaden my comfort zone, I go downhill skiing. And I know that sounds a little bizarre that a blind guy thinks it's a good idea to strap on a pair of skis and go hurtling down a mountain at 60 miles an hour. But that's one of the things that I now enjoy doing quite a bit. I started skiing at 38 years old. And you know now we, we ski some pretty aggressive terrain, blacks and even double blacks, without being able to see. And there's one thing that's great about a mountain is there's plenty of opportunity to get outside of your comfort zone. And that's probably what also drew me into Brazilian jiu-jitsu or, or grappling, which is something that I picked up a little over a year ago, where it's, you know, it's very much a, it's a pretty, it's called the, you know, the gentle art is what it stands for in Japanese jiu-jitsu, but it's a lot of things. It doesn't really feel all that gentle when someone's trying to choke you or, or put you in an arm bar or, you know, a, a shoulder lock. But I think, because I've lived so much of my life outside of my comfort zone, I start looking for opportunities to continue expanding my comfort zone. And it's because I've realized 
that I am capable of more than I give myself credit for. And, and so are you, and, and so are your, so is your audience. Every single one of us are capable of more than we give ourselves credit for. And if we would just take that first step, that first tiny little step outside of our comfort zone, we could start to learn that we are capable of more than we think is possible. The first time that I skied, I didn't go down a black diamond. You know, it was just getting, getting on my bindings and getting on the magic carpet. And, and so I, I started outside of my comfort zone where the consequences weren't so great. They weren't catastrophic. So when I did fall, falling's inevitable. It, it, it wasn't uh, devastating to me. It didn't destroy me. And it gave me a flavor for, you know what? Maybe I can do this skiing thing. Maybe I can do this jujitsu thing. Maybe I can do more than I thought I could. And that's true, whether it's a sport like downhill skiing or Brazilian jiu-jitsu, or maybe it's a new profession that you want to go into, or maybe it's a new degree that you want to get, something different that you want to do in your personal life. Taking that first step is the hardest part. And that's why I say, yeah, you want a bold vision of greatness that inspires you to take action. But when you go to take that first step, that first step needs to be really, really small because it's that first step that's the hardest one to take. How does a blind person ski? How, what's the, what's the the technique, and how does how does that work? Are you skiing with other people? Are you you have sound? How does that work? Someone skis behind me, and we're both wearing Bluetooth earpieces in our helmets with a microphone system, and they tell me whether to go left or right. And what could know, possibly go wrong? Right, I mean, it's bulletproof. <laughs> Right. I mean, it's hard enough to ski when you when you could see, let alone at the start yeah. skiing at 38. It's one thing if you started skiing when you were five, but uh, to start skiing at 38 is pretty You impressive. better be, if you can't ski, you don't know how to ski and you start learning at 38 and you can't see, you better be comfortable picking yourself up off the ground. Yeah, there, there was a lot of picking myself up off the ground, a lot. And uh, this, does your family ski? Do you, do you guys all ski together? I did. I got everyone enrolled. Yeah, I got everyone enrolled. It took me a little while. They didn't ski before, but now we go every year. So yeah, I've got everyone involved with skiing. They love it, which is great because it really makes my heart sing getting out on the mountain. And it's really fun to see my kids and my wife enjoy that as well. It's really, really inspiring for me. You know, you talked about that you were in a car accident when you were younger, when you went into a ditch going for a hamburger. Talk about that experience, how that may, may have changed the way you look at things. Well, yeah, I was, I was going to get a hamburger and I ended up, I was, I was being hard-headed truthfully. And, and at, at that, that, well, the, the time that I was going to get the, the, the burger, I was, I was actually walking, I think. I think that's the one you, you might be referring to. And, I was hard-headed. I I wanted the wanted the hamburger, so I decided I was going to walk and get it, even though I knew good and well that I I didn't have the eyesight really in poorly lit situations, and um, ended up falling down into a, a 12, 15 foot drainage ditch uh, for one of these little you know creek beds. And honestly, it was it was so painful. I wasn't sure I was going to be able to pull myself up out of the ditch. It was a, quite a quite a fall, and I ended up. I did pull myself out of it, and made it to the side of the road. Somebody stopped and and picked me up. My girlfriend at the time took me to the hospital. I ended up 
on crutches and in a wheelchair for the next couple of months. It was a pretty, pretty bad fall. And I think what I learned from that experience is that maybe there is a point to where being hard-headed is um, is not serving its purpose. <laughs> it was it was uh, one of those things where it was definitely not worth the hamburger. Um, but I, I thought I wanted it so badly. It just, you know, without any, um, without factoring in the consequences of what could possibly go wrong was not the best idea. So, uh, when you, you talked about the leader dogs before that you went with the leader dogs, and what's the process of picking out the right dog and getting the dog trained? How does that work? Well, what they do, they ask a few questions and they find out what my environment is going to be for the dog. They find out what kind of work environment will the dog have? Will there be a lot of office environment, a lot of travel, a lot of being at home? What's my walking pace? What's my gait? Do I have a, a, a fast pace? Do I have a, a very slow pace? What sorts of things will the dog be expected to do? Uh, for example, for me, you know, when I, I got my dog, the last one I got, Sarge, because I traveled a lot, I told them, all right, I'd like a German Shepherd. I'd, I'd like a male German Shepherd, good sized dog, because I'm a decent sized guy. And I travel a lot. So the dog, you know, needs to be comfortable walking at a good pace. The dog needs to be comfortable not really knowing a routine because I don't know what city I'm going to be in. So there's not, there's not like a nine to five where I get up every day and I go to the same office and come home. I either go to a different city to a different office or I go to a different city and give a keynote. So I'm always in a different hotel. So there's no real patterning um, other than maybe, you know, my home airport, that's a little bit of a pattern getting in and out of that, that particular that 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 side of the of, of the trip and so when I told them that and I said well you know and I need a dog that can handle escalators and elevators I need a dog that can handle crowds at conventions up to 20,000 people I need a dog that can handle laying down for long periods of time for conferences 8 10 12 hours I need a dog that can go with me on a long-haul flight to Singapore or China. I need a dog that can handle boats. And, and they're like, well, basically what you're telling us is you need a dog with a cape. <laughs> you need a super dog. And I said, yeah, I guess I am. So they ended up taking all that into account. And after about six to eight months, they found me my super dog, Sarge. And so Sarge is, has all of those attrib attributes and, and even more, honestly. So we've I've taken him all over. We probably hit 30 or 40 countries in the first year that I had him. How old is Sarge now? Sarge is seven. And uh, he does better on the long haul flights, flights than I do. He, uh, he's, he settles really well. And what kind of dog is he? German Shepherd. German Shepherd. And uh, so when you get on, on the plane with that type of a, a dog that size, what kind of reactions do you get? Most people are really accommodating. They're really great about it. I will say I did have one time in all my travels where someone saw me coming on and they literally ran off, like sprinted down the aisle and ran off. I guess they thought I was an ATF agent or something because I was wearing a dark suit, you know, sunglasses, 
uh, you know, Blazer and German Shepherd. I guess they thought maybe there was a bomb on the plane or something, but they literally went off sprinting from the plane. So, Chad, you talk a lot about gratitude and how that's so important for people to be able to change. Tell us about gratitude and how you look at it. Well, I think gratitude really is the anchor for everything in our lives. As I mentioned, you know, I went to Leader Dogs for the Blind and I was, I really didn't have a lot of gratitude for what I had in my life. I didn't have gratitude for the fact that, you know, I had all of my, my cognitive faculties. Some people there had mental impairments. I didn't have gratitude for my hearing. Some people were deaf and blind. I didn't have gratitude for the fact that I wasn't hooked up to a dialysis machine, you know, because some people there, they had diabetes and I didn't even have gratitude for the, the 20 or so years of sight that I had. And that really occurred to me when I was around people who didn't have those things. And so that was a, a really stark realization for me, how important gratitude is. And so it caused me to really stop and reflect and think how many of us think about the gratitude that we have for being here and one of the greatest countries in the history of civilization in the United States of America, where there's so much opportunity. How many of us stop and have gratitude for being born in the era that we were born in, where there's so much technology to help us do things that just weren't possible when, you know, we're, we're in a, you know, this services based economy, as opposed to, you know, something else that was more labor intensive. We could have just as, as, as easily been born you know, in a different country without opportunity, in a different era, um, you know, where where we were didn't have near the amount of not only opportunity but support, and just the things that I think, and for, for me too, you know, my family, I was born into a, a really good family who who cared about me and gave me support, and you know, I didn't get to sign up for any of that. You know, you didn't get to sign up for being born into this country or born into this era or getting the talents that you were given and all of us were, were given talents. And I think there are just so many things that we all take for granted as if it's a rite of passage when in reality, we could have easily drawn a completely different ticket. And so I think it's, it's just important to be mindful of those things that we all naturally take for granted. And so because of that, at home every night, me and my family, my, my two kids, and my wife, we all say three things that we're thankful for each day. And there's not a lot of rules to this, but there are a few. You know, you can't say something that somebody else has said. You got to think of your own. And you can't, you can't be thankful for something that hasn't happened. It has to be something that has already taken place. And so what the goal here is, is to bring conscious attention to yeah, the extraordinary, but also the mundane things that we all can tend to take for granted. Like the fact that, you know what, I'm thankful today that, you know, I was able to get some task done, or I'm thankful that I'm thankful we have a roof over our heads. I'm thankful that we have food in the refrigerator. I'm thankful that we all have our health. You know, the things that all of us can tend to take for granted. And so what I'm hoping this does is it brings this exercise of having gratitude from the extraordinary 
into the ordinary so that my kids in particular can develop the muscle memory to have that reaction, that response of gratitude in their lives, because I know it's not happiness that brings us gratitude. It is gratitude that brings us happiness. So if you can choose gratitude, then you can you can live a much happier life. You know, you talk about some studies, the Harvard study, happy people are better off in productivity and uh, more creative. If you could talk a little bit about that study. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Sean Aker is a Harvard researcher, and he found that happy employees, and he went over 225 studies, right? And he found happy employees have 31% higher productivity, 37% higher sales, and 300% more creativity. Now, there was this one experiment where researchers blindfolded these participants, and they told them that their right arms were being rubbed with a poison ivy plant. And all 13 participants, uh, broke out with the typical symptoms. No surprise, right? Well, turns out that they, it wasn't even poison ivy that they used. It was a harmless plant. Now, on their left arms, these researchers rubbed poison ivy, but told them that it was a harmless plant. And although all 13 participants were highly allergic to poison ivy, only two broke out with a rash. Now, that's impressive, but what's even more impressive to me is that these researchers found a bunch of people who were highly allergic to poison ivy who agreed to have poison ivy rubbed all over them. There was another experiment called the hotel maid study where these researchers looked at cleaning crews across seven different hotels, and they divided these cleaning crews up, and they told half the staff how much their work was like exercise. Now, the other half didn't get any of that priming. And several weeks later, the researchers found that the people who had been primed to think of their work as exercise actually lost weight, even though nothing changed other than the perceptions. The physical activities were identical to what they'd been before. You see, the way we think about things is so powerful, it even changes our body chemistry. It's impressive. And talk about visualization techniques and how important they are and how we could use that to make us more productive, to make us happier, to make us better at the task that we're trying to get better at. Well, yeah, I think if you can't visualize what greatness looks like in a situation, it's gonna be pretty hard to get there. I think, you know, looking at how can you reimagine greatness in your current basket of circumstances. And a lot of times, you know, that that requires that you look at, in particular, what are the facts of the situation? And what are the stories I'm telling myself about those facts? Now, the facts, you can't really change the facts of the situation. The fact of my situation was I was blind and there was no cure for it. So instead of changing the fact of the situation, I had to reimagine how I could make it work for me instead of against me. And once I reimagined a vision of greatness for my blindness, then I could start looking at, all right, what stories am I telling myself about those facts? And how can I tell myself new and improved stories in support of my vision of greatness? So I have a new and improved vision of greatness for my facts, for these unchangeable circumstances. 
how I'm going to make these facts work for me instead of against me. Now, what stories am I going to use to tell myself? What am I going to tell myself about my situation that powers me forward instead of keeping me trapped? So you, you use visualization, visualization for success. I have a son who plays baseball. Mm -hmm. and many times I tell him, you could just lay in bed and visualize you know, pitching correctly or hitting correctly, not even doing the task, but it could be as good as actually doing the task. And I wanted to know if you agree with that or not. I, I don't know if I would say as good. It depends on the task. I think something physical like that, and I'll speak from the experience of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, I do often visualize the movements and I think it's really helpful to visualize the movements. And that gets it into what I think of as the cognitive stream, the cognitive intelligence. How do I get it into the cognitive intelligence? That is very important, but there is a point in particular with sports and, and, and with other things, you know, where you, you have to, to get the physical reps because you have to get the somatic intelligence up as well. How can you get that wisdom into the body? And so... Yes, I agree that it's helpful. Is it a replacement? You know, for a for a career-related or professional thing that doesn't require the same degree of body wisdom and, and body cooperation, I would say that you, you might be able to get about the same out of it. But with something like Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, you know, it's helpful to do that, but it's not the same as getting on the mat with somebody and doing it when they're putting pressure on you. And then your, your son's case, you know, playing ball, right? When you actually have live rounds, those repetitions, those live reps that you're getting out there on the field or on the mat are really, really important as you start to take it from what I think of as the cognitive stream and into the somatic stream so that you can really get that intelligence down into the muscle memory and the nervous system so that the body can learn to do it on its own. Well, as we finish up uh, part one of our interview, Chad, if people want to find out more about you, about what you do, get your book, how can they do that? Well, the best place to go is my website, chadefoster.com. There they can find all of my social media handles. It's find Chad E. Foster at Facebook and an Instagram and then Twitter's Chad E. Foster. And then my book is everywhere they can buy books. So it's on Amazon, it's on Audible, it's on, uh, it's, you know, Books A Million, Barnes and Noble, any, anywhere books are sold, basically. This is Dr. Kerry Gelb for Open Your Eyes Radio on AM 1280 The Patriot. We'll be back next week with part two of Chad Foster. The All Eyes Visual VRP is a portable vision testing platform that includes visual fields, acuity, color vision testing, pupillometry, and extraocular motility. The visual leverages virtual reality, artificial intelligence, and augmented technologies to enable eye care providers to test for and monitor common eye diseases. Visit alleyes.com for more information.
Your eyes and your vision are under attack, damaging blue light from the sun. Your phone, your computer, your tablet, even light bulbs and car headlights is constantly bombarding you. The good news is our eyes actually already have a line of defense to counter the effects of blue light. This defense is made up of three pigments called carotenoids. MacuHealth with Micromycel, the only supplement with the exclusive patent on all three macular carotenoids and Micromycel technology. Fitting multifocal contact lenses presents a big opportunity to meet patient needs while growing your practice. Alcon is your partner not only with our innovative portfolio, but through e-learning. Learn to enhance your multifocal strategy today with the Alcon Experience Academy. OIE Broadcasting is the emerging leader in social media. We use scientific entertainment to drive more patients into your office. Visit OIEbroadcasting.com and sign up today. Since I bought Safe For You, my dad makes me clean his boat. It's natural y es un buen producto. Every time I go back to school, my mom always makes sure that I have my Safe For You products. I bring extra and my roommates certainly don't mind. It's a good thing I had Safe For You to clean up after this little guy. When my hands get dry, I like to wash them with Safe For You. And most importantly, the reason why I buy Safe For You is because it's safe for me and you.